Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached the day after Election Day. We still don't know for sure who's won the presidential election. Control of the U.S. Senate is still unclear. Many votes are still being counted. The picture in Utah is clearer. And we're going to talk on the program today about where we are and where we go from here. And we'll be joined by UPR News Director Madeline Mortensen. Maddie, welcome back. We spent uh, part of last night together. Thanks. Yeah, good to be here, Tom. Thank you. Uh, same with USU political uh, science professor Damon Can. Uh, thanks for being on with us last night and this morning. Glad to be here, Tom. And um, and from the USU political science department, Michael Lyons will join us at about uh, 9.30 today, so he'll be on with us a little later. Uh, I'm very interested in hearing what you are thinking, and uh, we are opening the uh, email, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com is how you reach us, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. How are you feeling this morning? What are your hopes, your fears? What are you focused on? Uh, is this race going to be accepted as legitimate uh, either way it goes by everybody? Uh, do you worry about protests or violence? And what issues or races are you focused on? UPRAccess at gmail.com. Uh, Maddie Martin, so let me start with you. Um, I'm sure you've been following, uh, well, all the races, but uh, maybe we could start with the Utah races. Yeah, so I got up this morning and started looking at state house races. And, you know, it looks like... If I'm counting right, there are maybe seven or so house races that are too close to call. It's looking like there are four races where the incumbent Republican, um, the Democratic candidate, is a little bit ahead right now. And it's interesting, as I look at those four races, it looks like all of those Democratic candidates that are a little bit ahead are women. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit last night with um, Shelley Giddings. Am I saying her name right? Yes. And about, um, you know, people being interested in having those female candidates. So it looks like, um, you know, still lots and lots of votes to count. But it looks like there are some close margins in the House um, and that the Republicans might lose a little bit of their supermajority. But it's not going to be enough to um, change it from being controlled by over two thirds Republicans. Yeah. Um, the the uh, closely contested uh, House District 4 uh, looks l- like uh, Ben McAdams is leading, but uh, I don't know how, what the percentage is of vote coming. He's still leading, but it is a smaller lead than it was last night. Last night, I feel like he had over had a little bit more, like higher 50 percent, and it's lower 50 percent as we're looking at it this morning. And uh, as I uh, quickly looked up the constitutional amendments, uh, it appeared that all of those were leading. Yeah, and if I'm even reading, yeah, they're all leading. It looks like um, if the trends were to continue that all of those would pass. And I think some of them have already um, been declared as passed at this point. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on those, of course. Uh, Damon Ken, uh, let's start with Utah with you as well. What what are you uh, focusing on? Any surprises? Uh, you know, a lot of things have inf- unfolded much like uh, you know, we, we would have predicted. Uh, we've seen uh, strong Republican success. Uh, Spencer Cox wins the governor's race by a large margin uh, and comes out with, I, I just thought, really a, a remarkably gracious statement this morning commending 
uh, his, uh, his his opponent, Chris Peterson, and uh, committing to be a governor for all Utahns, and, uh, and just some some wonderful, beautiful sentiments expressed there at a time when our country is so deeply divided. Great to hear uh, words words like that from uh, our incoming governor. Uh, Republican success across our House races, and uh, the one exception is the 4th Congressional District, but that's the one that we expected to be a close race, and boy, that race between Burgess Owens and Ben McAdams is going to be a nail-biter. Uh, it's a 7,000-vote margin uh, right now, and I think this one's going to look a lot uh, like our, uh, our our gubernatorial primary did this summer, where it takes you know potentially a week of ballots coming in. Uh, there's uh, ballots still, lots of ballots still to be counted from Juap County and San Pete County, uh, where we'll see a lot more, uh, we've traditionally seen more Republican support, but there's still a number of ballots remaining to be counted from Salt Lake County, uh, where Ben McAdams' uh, greatest source of support has been. So that's one race that we're going to be watching for a few days yet, I think. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Well, remember that gubernatorial primary? It was uh, it was about a week. Um, maybe that's yeah. good, a good segue into the uh, into the national scene. Uh, so, I'll start with Damon Can on this one. Um, the uh, presidential race, uh, you know, still not called, and may not be for a day or two. Yeah, uh, the uh, Pennsylvania uh, leadership was out this morning saying they don't expect this to be done today that uh, this could go on for some period of time. Uh, there's still a path of victory for either of these candidates. Uh, uh, the, the president has uh, you know, certainly uh, overperformed what most people had projected uh, in, uh, over the last several weeks. We saw some polls suggesting the race was narrowing, uh, but uh, you know a lot hinges on uh, how the ballots that have come in just at the tail end uh, or that will still arrive and uh, some states uh, still allow ballots to be counted if they arrive after Election Day as long as they were postmarked in a timely way. So uh, these states, too, could take some time before our election results are in. So buckle your seatbelts on uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, and even uh, possibly still Georgia um, and you know, or North Carolina, we're going to need to see where these states uh, come out before we know how the election is resolved. Uh, Matty, it does look like uh, many of the outstanding votes in some of these states uh, are maybe still need to come from large metropolitan areas, maybe uh, yeah. favoring Mr. Biden. And what we talked about last night, too, is we just don't know at what point these votes were cast. We don't know if they were mail-in ballots that are going to be counted later. We don't know if they're election night ballots that are going to be counted later. And we just know with how people were choosing to vote even became politicized this year. So at what point those ballots were coming from, we know can impact election results. Um, in any case, Damon can um, at least in some states looks like a polling error. Yes. Uh, so you, you know, when if, if you look at some of the states, uh, you know, we we saw Georgia and North Carolina making a little bit of a swing back towards the president, uh, and uh, uh, in Texas at one point people were calling into question 
uh, that in the waning days of the election, we saw the polls swinging back to the president. A lot of our, our polling forecast models, so you look at Nate Silver's 538, Larry Sabato's crystal ball, uh, and, and, and even real clear politics as polling average system. The average polls that could go back and be as much as a week or more old. And so when we had some of these late breaking changes in the election, those, uh, those changes were difficult to capture in polling because that one or two poll, those one or two polls that came in just in the last day or two before the election, got averaged with poll data that was older and hadn't yet picked up some of these transitions. That being said, there's still a couple of places where the margin is much closer, even than the latest polls would have, uh, than the, the, the final polls would have indicated. Uh, Michigan, for example, uh, just wasn't supposed to be close. Uh, but the president continues uh, to be competitive there, although as we get more and more of the urban areas and the mail, uh, mail ballots uh, that are getting tallied, we do see um, the, the president, uh, excuse me, the, the, the former vice president, Mr. Biden, uh, you know, coming back and potentially moving into a leading position there. So we've got... Uh, um, you know, you know, some of the, the the problem I think with polling is simply attributable to the fact that much like we saw in 2016, in the final days of the election, a lot of voters who hadn't been previously expressing support for Trump were coming out and saying, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to vote for Trump. And uh, um, and but that can't explain all of what happened in some of the states. Our polling was just off uh, by a few points, and uh, you know that makes this election uh, coming out to be more uh, competitive than it was, uh, um, or than it appeared to be in polls a week ago. Maddie, I wonder if you could share, you shared this last night, uh, you received a text, was it, uh, social media? Oh, yeah. From, from somebody who works in polling. Yeah, a friend who said that they have, you know, helped with some telephone polls and just saying that their feeling is that Republicans can be pretty skeptical of, well, conservatives, people who are deeply conservative, can be pretty skeptical of answering that who they voted for question and just saying that when they look at those numbers, they look at the undecided and they figure, oh, 80% of those are Trump votes. Um, yeah, so so at least this one pollster, you know, it's one data point, but this pollster is uh, thinks that they're they're, they're uncovering. So, so not a poll store, but somebody that's volunteered and oh, helped with things like that. So, oh, so, so not not a poll store, but somebody that that's volunteered and studied political science and looked at those things. Okay, and they think they're they're detecting this. Uh, this it might be a trend. Yeah, I th- and I think that's something that other people say. You know, I hear people talk about that. That you know, people don't want to say that they're voting for Trump, even if it's on the phone to a poll store, whether it's because they distrust it or because they are worried about the backlash that um, they feel exists. Uh, so, David Cat, I wonder, have you responded to that? Uh, is that I, I just uh, this morning on NPR, I heard uh, a political operative. This I think it was a Republican in Florida, uh, who said, "Well, you know, the polls have been off for what three cycles in a row." And this person said, "Maybe we, maybe we can't trust the polls going forward, at least in Florida." Well, look, there's a lot of uncertainty that goes into polling, and uh, the margin of error 
that we report this plus or minus 3% or 4% or whatever it happens to be for a particular poll is only designed to capture differences uh, that are attributable to random chance uh, inclusion or exclusion of people from the sample. And that margin of error doesn't account for things like individuals systematically refuse of a particular ideological bent refusing uh, to answer the poll or those kinds of things. Those require additional uh, information. And uh, I, I think, you know, I, I would probably not say that the polling was, was terribly problematic in 2018. Uh, a lot of folks in the polling industry felt like they had fixed or addressed the issues. There's just something unique about Trump. Uh, and, and some of his supporters are a lot harder to find. They're harder to pick up. And they're, they're harder to get them to express their opinions, perhaps on the phone. And uh, to the extent that this happens, uh, then our polls have the potential to be off uh, by, uh, by a little bit more than what's explained by that margin of error. That's interesting. So we've, got some more, we've got some work to do. We've got mm-hmm. some more things to learn uh, about election polling and, and make sure that we're including uh, individuals from a wide range of groups. We tend to undersample people with lower levels of education. We tend to undersample uh, um, uh, people uh, who are kind of in the lower socioeconomic range. Uh, and a lot of those individuals... Uh, have broken for Trump in this election, and that could be a part of the reason why we're why why we had a little bit of slippage between the poll results and and where things are coming in as our election returns come in. So that's interesting. You you're I think I hear you saying that uh, this is a maybe a Trump voter phenomenon. After the era of Trump, uh, you know, Republican candidate X may be a little easier to find. And get to respond, um, you know, his or her uh, voters. Yes, uh, you know, I'll give you an example um, of a poll that I had in the field in 2016. Uh, this was just focused on the state of Utah, uh, but working with some colleagues uh, at the University of Utah and Brigham Young, we had a field uh, a poll out in the field in the 2016 election, and our poll results. Uh, were very close at predicting the outcome of Senate races. Uh, or the, the Senate race, uh, we did a, a very good job within one or two percentage points of predicting the outcome of the congressional races in the state of Utah. But our survey results on Trump were off uh, by a significant amount. Uh, and it was really interesting for us as we started to kind of pick that apart uh, that we could have a survey that was so accurate for the congressional races, but that struggled uh, with, uh, with, with Trump. And I think that what's, what that suggests is that there's not necessarily something systematic about Republicans and Democrats, but something unique about the way people look at, feel about, and evaluate uh, the president uh, that is influencing in ways we're not used to accommodating the outcomes of our polling uh, efforts. Uh, Maddie, I wonder, uh, uh, talk about uh, mail-in voting um, and and what might be a new normal, I suppose. We're used to it here in Utah. 
Yeah, I think we talked about this last night. I mean, from my perspective, I have a hard time imagining that if people start voting by mail and if states start figuring it out, that people would want to go to the other form. I mean, I think about it. I can't imagine that um, that by mail voting, um, I would imagine that greatly recrease, decreases the numbers of volunteers you need on election day. So I think it can really allow places to do some of that coordination pre-election. And, you know, when we look at accessibility, it really is awesome for so many people, um, whether you have children, whether you have mobility issues, whether you have a disability. Um, I think people will be opening it more. I think we have to remember that we're always going to need some in-person voting. We know things like, I believe, the Navajo language just doesn't, um, I don't think works as well on a ballot as maybe other languages do. And we know if somebody um, is blind or visually impaired, they might need another kind of assistance to vote. But I think overall, it really opens up voting to so many more people. And personally, I love getting my ballot because I can sit there with my computer and Google things that maybe I didn't realize. Um, We got long ballots this year. It was nice to be in my bedroom, sitting down and have time to just go through and figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, Damon Can, did you have that experience as well? I, I, I resonate, that resonates with me. Uh, especially the constitutional amendments. Uh, I, I appreciated some time to look those up. Sure, and, and that's a that's a common experience. Um, one of the the things we find in the literature on uh, voting by mail is that when people first hear about it, they tend to be a little bit skeptical and uncertain about it. Once people experience voting by mail, their interest in voting that way tends to go up. Uh, and and they, they tend to like it and, and trust it a little bit more. Um, and it's remarkable. Last night, uh, I actually was, was a volunteer uh, with the Cache County Clerk's Office where I uh, helped to collect the ballots from a, a, a drop box in North Logan. And uh, you know, we, it, the, the level of security and, and the safeguards that are in place are, are really impressive on, on voting by mail. Uh, for example, I had to take another individual with me. Uh, the North Logan City Recorder uh, agreed to go with me, and, and we went. We had to meet at the library uh, where the drop box is at the appointed time. We had bags to put the ballots into that could be then sealed with zip ties so that uh, the, you know, the, the bag couldn't be opened until it was uh, time and the right equipment was there, uh, and then dropped it off, certified, indicated that, that, uh, that our uh, assigned station had been returned, uh, and then uh, you know, good ballot security in place in, in the office there. So lots of good uh, protective measures to make sure that ballots are handled and processed. In, uh, in, in an appropriate way. Uh, the thing that a lot of people miss on vote by mail is they, they assume that voting by mail will increase turnout. And what our literature suggests is actually that voting by mail just makes it more convenient to vote for people who are already going to vote anyways. Uh, if you look at states that have adopted like Oregon or Washington, uh, and more recently Colorado and, and now Utah, uh, for the first election or two that you have by mail voting, voter turnout tends to increase a little bit because of the novelty of that process. 
But then within a few election cycles, you tend to see voter turnout go back to just about the same place that it was prior to uh, the advent of voting by mail in those states. But uh, it can make it a lot easier uh, for people uh, to vote. I personally think that some form of Election Day voting will always be with us, uh, whether it's uh, to help vulnerable populations like uh, Maddie pointed out, uh, to help voters with disabilities to be able to have access to the ballot uh, with, with specialized equipment uh, that makes that possible, and for people who just like to vote on Election Day. Uh, but I, I think we're going to see that as people, more people had experiences with, with postal voting, we're going to see a lot more people have interest in doing that again and again across the country in elections in the future. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back. We'll have more with uh, Madeline Mortensen, who's a UPR News Director, and uh, Damon Can, Professor of Political Science at uh, Utah State University. It's the day after Election Day. Uh, results on presidential uh, level still uh, unclear, and we may not have uh, final calls for at least a couple of days. Uh, the uh, the races in Utah are cleared, although the uh, 4th Congressional District is still up in the air, and uh, that's going to be very, very close. Um, we would love to hear from you. I want to know what uh, what you're thinking and feeling uh, this morning. Um, and uh, do you have uh, do you have fears, uh, trepidations about uh, protests or violence? Um, what uh, do you think about the results so far? What issues are you uh, focusing on? Uh, you can reach us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, we'll have more following this. 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu online. Election coverage is also supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. America, were we ready for this election? This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for a live conversation on the night after election night. We'll take calls on your voting experiences and analyze the results and the ongoing counts. America, are we ready? Wednesday evening, beginning at 6, here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, uh, we're recapping the election. Uh, recap is a strong word. Uh, it's premature. The results still aren't in on the presidential level. Uh, still unclear a bit about the Senate. The results are clearer um, in Utah, although the 4th Congressional District uh, appears to be a nail-biter. 
And uh, we have with us uh, on the line Damon Can from the USU Political Science Department, uh, Madeline Mortensen, UPR News Director, and we're now joined by Michael Lyons from the USU Political Science Department. Uh, Dr. Lyons, uh, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? D- doing very well. Uh, so uh, how are you doing? What are you thinking <laughs> this morning? The, uh, races are still uh, up in the air. What uh, w- What's your prediction? Well, I've been doing a lot of math in my head the last half an hour, and the number 269 turns up in a lot of different permutations here. Um, I, Based on the comparison between last night and this morning, I think Michigan and Wisconsin look pretty good for Joe Biden. It would be very interesting to know which parts of Nevada have not been counted yet. If that's Las Vegas vote in Nevada that hasn't been counted, then I can get Joe Biden over the bar without Pennsylvania or Georgia. But uh, and that's assuming he has Arizona. Uh, but without Nevada, that's 269, is what you're saying? Well, you can get to 269, I think, if I'm doing the math right. If you give him everything in Maine... Apparently, as of what I read last night, he did win the Omaha-Nebraska district. And again, this assumes, this assumes Wisconsin and Michigan, which is by no means certain. Um, but Wisconsin and Michigan do look pretty good to me at this point. I don't know what Damon has said already. Um, uh, but it's, you know, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's unbelievably close, and, and there's a lot in play. So uh, 269, uh, that, <laughs> that's a bad number, uh, because uh, if it's, uh, yeah, if it's too... Of course, as I understand it, it would be the new House of Representatives. Uh, the election would get thrown into the new House of Representatives. Now, I did the math on the current House of Representatives. Of course, each state delegation casts one vote. And in the current House of Representatives... The Republicans control uh, 26 delegations, the Democrats control 23, and Pennsylvania is split. A 269-269 outcome should lead to the re-election of President Trump with the current House. Uh, I didn't see opportunities for Democrats to capture House delegations other than Pennsylvania and Montana. Well, they didn't capture Montana. So my presumption is the new House will still be one in which the Republicans have control of a majority of the state delegations. So at 269-269, Donald Trump wins re-election, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and that's uh, that's if uh, Mr. Biden loses Nevada. That's what you're saying. <clears throat> uh, well, I mean, there's, there's several possibilities here. Again, I, I, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan aren't in the bank, and um, there's at least one electoral vote up for grabs in Maine, from what I could see. I've been looking on different websites this morning, and some people are forecasting that Biden will pull out Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, uh, Damon Can, what do you think? Uh, what's uh, what, what's likely to happen in those upper Midwest uh, states and, and Nevada? Do you think? Yeah, this, uh, the electoral math is really interesting and a lot of fun. And uh, uh, the uh, you know it's 
often that we've seen uh, some of these states, uh, you know, Nebraska and Maine, that split their electoral college votes by congressional district be consequential. And yet uh, I'm doing the math uh, just like uh, like Mike is doing, and I'm finding that I, it may actually be uh, Nebraska or Maine with one congressional uh, district going a different way that determines the outcome of this election. But I, I, I see things trending in a very favorable direction for, uh, for Joe Biden in these upper Midwest states. Uh, last night, early returns had the president up. Uh, Michigan, in being contested and even in favor of the president, where polls had suggested that uh, er- earlier that Michigan was pretty solid for uh, for Biden. Uh, what we're going to end up with is a close outcome. But uh, as as more returns have come in, and based on what it seems we're going to see, where those votes appear to be coming from in the coming days. Uh, I think was likely to see uh, uh, those come down in favor of Mr. Biden. Though, as as Mike pointed out, it, this is by no means a foregone conclusion, and it could still go in the direction. Pennsylvania, I think, is a true toss-up still at this point. But if if Biden is able to win Wisconsin and Michigan. And it looks like uh, Biden is going to pick up one of those uh, congressional district votes for the Omaha, Nebraska area. Uh, and, and then uh, all Biden needs to win is to either pick up Nevada or Pennsylvania. And if he can win one of those two states, then he would win the election. If Trump is able able to either pull off a victory, will once again breach the so-called blue wall in the Rust Belt uh, states by winning either Wisconsin or Michigan and also winning Pennsylvania, then that is a path to victory uh, for President Trump. So anything could still happen here. We're still counting votes in the states that we thought would be close, that we thought would take a little bit more time. Uh, any decision on on who wins or, or loses this election at this point is still premature, and uh, um, you know, we're going to be we're, we're going to be counting votes. Uh, I think at least through the day today, and possibly for several days yet to come before we know exactly where the outcome is going to land. I want to, uh, to uh, there's a fear that a lot of people have. Uh, I want to talk about this now. I'll start with uh, with Maddie on this one. Um, you know, protest, violence, uh, some segment of the population not accepting the results is legitimate. Uh, here in Utah, you know, it's went, went fairly smoothly, Maddie. I, I read in Salt Lake there was, uh, you know, some opposing uh, crowds, uh, Trump supporters versus Black Lives Matter group, but that, that didn't seem to to erupt into any violence at all. Yeah, I haven't heard of anything ending up in rioting or violence in our state yet. Um, yeah, and I think hopefully that will be the trend that we see continue. But just as we know that the election results aren't going to be final for a few days, I think it's still important that we're that we're cognizant in our communities of of hopefully doing the things that prevent that from being the outcome since we since we aren't going to have final results for a few days. Uh, Mike Lyons, do you uh, do you worry about this? Uh, the, the, the president uh, last night or early this morning uh, 
you know, said that um, that I think his his phrase was Democrats are trying to trying to steal the election. Uh, we're going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, looks like he's he, he's maybe going to continue this uh, rhetoric. Well, there's cause for concern, unquestionably, and um, we have almost all the vote in in Wisconsin, and we know that's going to be very close. And there probably will be a recount uh, in Wisconsin, or at least it seems possible. And um, Pennsylvania may be very, very close. In fact, we add, you know, uh, all these states could be very close at this point that we've been discussing. So I, I, I think that um, the president is going to be disposed to challenge these results. How groups that support him are going to react, I think, depends to some extent on how he conducts himself. I will say that there's a repeated pre- uh, pattern with the president of, um, frankly, speaking loudly and carrying a very small stick. And, um, you know, he, he he backs off a lot of threats that he makes. So I'm relatively comfortable with, um, with, with, with what might happen in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the legal entanglements that we could be head for, headed for here concern me enormously. Uh, uh, there already have been lawsuits, right? Some of those are resolved, um, and, uh, but I guess there are certain scenarios that would have to play out, right? Um, uh, right, and I, I'm not an expert on election law and what exactly, what actions the president might be disposed to take. And, of course, federalism complicates all of this because each state, uh, you know, is, is a separate entity with... Uh, it's certain separate processes and laws that regulate things. So heaven help us is all I can say. Uh, I was praying for a decisive outcome of one time or another, and uh, we clearly don't have that. Hmm. Damon Can, what do you? Uh, how likely do you think it is that we might have uh, you know violence, a uh, segment of population not accepting uh, in the end the results of the election? A couple thoughts on that, Tom. Uh, It's a really interesting question. Um, uh, Two really great political scientists, uh, Liliana Mason and Nathan Calmo, just had a book come out uh, earlier this year on uh, attitudes towards political violence, because we have seen more, uh, more of these kinds of things happening or threats of political violence. And what their surveys find is really interesting uh, in that there's a huge share of people in this country that identify political violence as not being okay. They ask questions, is it okay to hit someone or hurt someone uh, or take violent action? Even things like you know, disrupt someone's meal in a restaurant or, or uh, you know, force someone out of a particular social setting, those kinds of, uh, of things, uh, taking a broader perspective on um, uh, on on uh, what they might call violence. What they find is that over 90% of Americans are opposed to those kinds of behaviors. Uh, and that's uh, reassuring in so many ways that people in this country, as divided as we are politically, have still some level of shared norms and values that it's not okay to harm someone 
because they have a poli- different political viewpoint than you have. So uh, I, I think that's very encouraging. On the flip side, even if you find, say, 5% of people who, uh, who are supportive of political violence, that's a large enough share of the country to cause some problems, uh, even if it's not a large enough share of the country to state some sort of massive uh, uprising or something of that nature. And so, uh, yes, I have some concerns, but the fact that we've made it through Election Day the way we have, I think, bodes well. Uh, the other uh, thing is uh, that, that kind of taps into this question is, there are close elections, and then there are really close elections. Uh, if we go back to the 2000 election, where we famously had all kinds of recounts, and and we were thinking about hanging Chad you know, where the, the little paper chunk that we used to press out of ballots in some states was still attached, but only ever so slightly uh, to the ballot. Um, you know, the, that election was decided by less than 500 votes uh, out of the millions and millions of votes that were cast in Florida, and then Florida was the decisive state. And uh, that it, it's common for us to see elections that are decided in a state by a percentage point or even a half percentage point. But those kinds of percentages still represent thousands of votes or even tens of thousands of votes that separate the candidates. And so a lawsuit about whether one particular thing counts or doesn't count is still not likely to make a difference in the outcome of the election. And we're still likely to have, even with a fairly close outcome, have an outcome that's decisive enough that there's not a lot to fight about. Uh, The scenario that I think we would need to be worried about is if Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Nevada turns out to be that kind of a state uh, where the election is decided by several dozen or maybe a couple hundred votes, where depending on which standard someone uses for how they count, how they evaluate voters' intent, or things of that nature, can make a difference in the outcome of the state, and that that state can make a difference in the outcome of the election, at that point, I would be very concerned about the prospects for uh or um, dispute about the integrity of the election. Hmm. Uh, Maddie, I want to talk, you talked about, uh, you know, uh, some gender gains, perhaps, in in Utah. It looks like nationally, um, on the Republican side, uh, maybe in the Senate and the House, more Republican women will be joining those those bodies. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think that that would be a really positive thing. I think it's always positive when we're bringing a wider variety of people to the table. And I think we've seen for the entirety of our country that um, women have been underrepresented in our lawmaking bodies. And so I I think that's overall very positive. Um, And I think when we see just how elections are run um, and when we see how things things work, you know, we often see more Democratic women running um, than we see Republican women running. And so if you're in a state like Utah or somewhere else that is a Republican stronghold, um, the way that you have to get more women into office would be those women being Republican women running. So I think I think anytime we're expanding the table, I think anytime a party or a country is bringing different people to that decision-making place, I think that shows hopeful things for our future overall. Um, 
I think overall, because the more people we have in the room making those decisions, I just think the odds are better that they're good decisions. Even if you don't agree with the politics of all the people making those choices, if they're representing a wider variety of who we are as a country, I think we can be hopefully more satisfied and hopefully more confident that it's something that's going to improve life for, for everyone. Michael Lanz, I know we we have to let you go here fairly soon. Um, uh, I want to ask about uh, the... Uh, conventional wisdom uh, took a hit, I think, last night and ongoing. And one of the pieces there, I don't know if, you, if you've had a chance to look at this, um, the conventional wisdom was um, the suburbs were moving away from uh, from Mr. Trump. I don't know if that's played out. Well, um, I wish I had the 2016 exit poll results uh, right in front of me now. It looks to me as if President Trump did make some inroads with female voters. Uh, Damon commented last night that he appeared to have done well uh, in the Latino community, and that shows up in the exit polling data. But he um, he did win 43% of the female vote nationally, and, um, and the male vote was split almost evenly, 49% for Trump, 48% for Biden in the New York Times exit polling. So, uh, you know, Biden did, I, I, I'm sure, appreciably better among males than uh, Hillary Clinton did. And I guess you would expect some drop-off, given that Joe Biden is male and Hillary Clinton is female. But you do wonder whether the um, violence we saw all summer long and the president's pitch that he was the law and order candidate who would bring the looting and rioting under control. Um, you, you wonder whether that did not help him um, as a candidate, and probably in the suburbs. Uh, Damon, can your take on that? No, I, I think uh, um, that, uh, that Mike is absolutely right on that front. Um, I think with some suburban voters that that, that could have helped Trump. The, the demographic group that I think... Uh, may may end up uh, being particularly influential in a way we've talked about uh, Trump trying to make even modest inroads with some of the minority communities uh, just you know not he doesn't have to win them but just not lose them quite as badly uh, and uh, uh, Biden doing a little bit uh, better with men than Hillary Clinton did could could be decisive. The other group we haven't really talked about uh, either last night or this morning is seniors. Um, we know that seniors vote. They tend to vote in large numbers. And seniors were a key perform- part of uh, Trump's coalition uh, with older Republican and suburban voters voting in Trump's favor uh, uh, in, in the 2016 election. Uh, at least enough of them propelled to victory in the number of key states. Some of those seniors in this election, uh, Trump's performance seems to be a little bit lower there uh, from what we've seen so far. As I try to think of the reasons why that may, might be, you know, we haven't talked about coronavirus in the election yet. And uh, I think coronavirus is a really important part of this, where seniors uh, are a uniquely vulnerable population to the coronavirus uh, polls show that they are more anxious, more worried, and more concerned about whether the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been sufficient. 
And I think that that may have given just enough uh, concern uh, uh, to to some seniors to tilt them towards voting for Biden instead of for Trump. Whether it's enough for that to change the outcome of the election, we don't know yet. Uh, but it's a group where, where Biden uh, was able to see some successes and Trump saw some slipping in this election relative to the last go-around. Well, let's take... Uh, Tom, yes, I, go ahead. I have the uh, 2016 exit poll results and the 2020 exit poll results on my computer right now and as David was speculating there, um, Biden did a little bit better among seniors than Trump, uh, than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And uh, Trump did a little bit better among women than he had in 2016. But actually, there's quite a bit of consistency in the two elections. Really not significant jumps in, in support across these demographic lines. I want to ask you, and uh, uh, again, uh, I think we have to let you go, uh, Professor uh, Lyons, here pretty yes. quick. Um, so I'll start with you on this one. Um, it is you know, it's it's we know we're very closely divided as a nation, um, and we thought by the polls that the, there was a, maybe a bigger shift, but it, it again, it's very, very, very close. Uh, do you think this is a Trump phenomenon, or or is this just the way we are going forward? I think Trump has accelerated a culture war that predates him substantially, and we can trace back really, ultimately, the Vietnam War to some extent, and and the whole counterculture movement of that era. Um, And it's been gradually gaining momentum, and certainly um, the, the, the sorting effect that is going on nationally where people appear to be moving to states and cities with a political culture that suits them. So places like Oregon, for example, that used to be a toss-up state, a purple state, have become firmly blue. And other places like Montana uh, have become firmly red. Um, You know, there, there are a whole number of social forces at play here, but um, it, it, it's nothing that just, you know, it, it 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 predates Donald Trump by decades, I think, and uh, Trump has certainly intensified things. And I do need to take off. And uh, okay, I uh, thank you, Tom. Great, great thank to have you, you on. Yeah, Michael Lyons from the USU Political Science Department. We have another uh, six or seven minutes uh, in the program. We have with us uh, Madeline Mortensen, uh, UPR News Director, and Damon Can from the USU. Uh, political science uh, department. Uh, somebody, I wonder, um, maybe kind of looking forward to the next few days, uh, you know, putting your uh, news reporter hat on, what are you going to be, what are the top questions? What are, you, what are the things you're going to be looking at? Well, I think all of us are going to be watching that fourth congressional race. And I think I'm going to be really interested to see what the future of the Utah House is. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if Democrats really do pick up seats or if it'll kind of be a wash maybe in those close elections. I think that's what I'm going to be the most curious about, just because we know that the supermajority in the legislature really drives policy. And while that supermajority won't be gone, it's interesting to see how those shifts um, could impact future legislative decisions. Um, Damon, can uh, right now, and the things are shifting, right now, the likeliest outcome 
looks like divided government. Um, and um, I don't know if that – do you think that's more likely going forward long term than, than less likely? It's, it seems like you'd see the polls uh, – I've seen the polls in the past that, uh, you know, people are maybe comfortable with divided government. Yes, uh, you know, and this is actually an enduring finding in American history that oftentimes uh, we, we see more periods of divided government where at least uh, one of the two chambers in uh, the legislative branch, either the House or the Senate, uh, or both, is controlled by a different party than controls the presidency. And, uh, and this is enough so that some people have even wondered if Americans prefer to kind of have some sort of balance in the government uh, as opposed to having unified control of the government. And, uh, you know, there's times where we see that, that when we have a strong period of unified control, that the party that has unified control has a tendency to just say, all right, we've got, we've got power, let's run this wagon until all the wheels fall off. And, uh, and it usually doesn't take long before they do. And, uh, and, and we end up back in a period of divided government again. But uh, there's also some research that shows that uh, as long as people don't let personal differences get in the way, we can still have passage of major legislation. We can still be successful in governing uh, the country. If you look at large swaths of American history, some of our most important legislative accomplishments uh, have taken place in periods of divided government. And so it doesn't necessarily mean four years of gridlock, uh, four years of fighting or outcomes, as long as our elected officials make a determination that they are willing to work together to try to still make uh, move our country forward, as opposed to making a decision that they're just going to dig in their heels and wait another couple of years until the next election comes around and try for a unified government scheme. Mm. Well, we're reaching the end of the program here. Um, uh, so, Maddie, I guess we, you know, we're, we're still up in the air on a lot of these uh, races, and uh, here in Utah, it's the fourth congressional district that uh, looks like it's going to come down to the wire. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that's surprising this morning when it comes to the races that are not called. Not surprising that we don't have a president. Not surprising that we don't know who's going to represent CD4. Not surprising that there are some House races in Utah. And I think some Senate races that are too close to call. Um, I think I think all of this is kind of where we expected to be. And the races that were called, I think that's kind of what we expected would be called. Uh, Damon can uh, just about a minute left. Um, as Maddie said, we you know we we expected that this would be the case. Uh, I, you know, some people I'm talking to this morning, uh, it's a case of head versus heart, right? It head versus emotions. Um, some people I've talked to, you know, Biden supporters, and the, they knew going in, okay, mail-in ballots. It's we're not going to know a, a, re- a reaction, but uh, you know, still a lot of nail biting. Yes, I, you know the, the the lesson for this moment that I think will last for years is our country didn't give a landslide election to Biden. Our country did not give a landslide election to Trump. And whoever is governing this country as president uh, or in the legislature needs to make a conscientious decision right now to recognize that we have a country that's that's ideologically diverse where lots of people want different things, 
and the best chances for success for our governance and for our country come by building consensus and working together rather than by pursuing a strategy to just burn it down and get what they want at all costs. And so I hope whatever the election outcome is, that that's the kind of governance we'll see moving forward. Well, a good place to end the conversation. Uh, Damon Can from the USU Political Science Department has been with us, so thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. And uh, Madeline Mortensen, UPR News Director, thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. And uh, tonight, this evening, is 6 o'clock, 6 to 8, is another special uh, America Are We Ready series. This one they're titling America Were We Ready? And, and kind of recapping the election, even though we may not know results uh, even by then. But that's a call-in special. I want to tune in, and you could uh, call into that as well. And uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah. 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. Working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. And election coverage is also supported by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu slash online. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org. My name is Helen Cannon and I garden in Cache Valley. Utah Public Radio is very important to me. It has been for much of my life. It's vital to my happiness.